Good morning. Would you please uh, get your sacred cookies and coffee and have a seat? And would you also check to make sure that your phone is uh, turned off? Um, thank you, Joshua, for manning the cameras and getting us to the people who are watching live stream today. Thank you for being here. I'm glad that you are are here. Um, so, as always, I want us to begin in silence, just to do what you need to do to get yourself in this room. If you take a deep breath, if it helps to close your eyes, you can do that. If not, um, just try to put your excitement about last night aside. So our goal here is to be present and to be open and to be awake. So I encourage each of you to make gratitude a part of your daily spiritual practice. Um, I keep a gratitude journal as part of my daily practice, and I encourage you to do that. I'm grateful for you. I mean, if it weren't for you, it'd be awfully lonely in here. <laughs> but really, the discipline of getting ready for here is uh, a, a very helpful thing for anyone who comes to, to speak here. I'm grateful for St. Paul's and uh, the ability to have this space and uh, all the support that we've had over the years. And whether you're uh, here in person or online, thank you for this um, for everything that had to happen for us to be here today. It's very dangerous to label things good or bad. It takes a long time to figure out sometime um, where we've learned our most important lessons. So for the past several weeks, I have been beginning by uh, offering some of the things that I use in my own daily spiritual practice. And I'm doing this because um, some have asked me what this entails, and I want you to understand that we are just scratching the surface in these very brief introductory remarks. I'm mostly talking about the head part of a spiritual practice in these comments. There's much more to it than that. I know that the people who are hosting the happy hour, their spiritual practice is walking meditation. And... Uh, that was, uh, if you want to know more about that, you can look at some of Thich Nhat Hanh's works because Thich Nhat Hanh really stressed the importance of walking meditation. It's a great thing to, to do. And uh, in this part of the city, there are good places to walk. There's a great uh, exact replication of the labyrinth that is in the Shark Cathedral right outside the, the cathedral across the plaza, and you can use it, and it's a wonderful thing. So at any rate, I've been offering some words that I use at the beginning of my spiritual practice, and I, I, I want to repeat these. Um, this is from a Celtic meditation, a Celtic prayer that I have adopted for myself. Uh, change the words of it some because it fits me better. Grace be in my head and my thinking. Grace be in my eyes and in my seeing. Grace be in my ears and in my hearing. Grace be in my mouth and in my speaking, and grace be in my heart and in my understanding, and grace be in my end and at my departing. 
that is a little softer way, this last line, to remind you that this could be it. All right? I mean, actually, the first line that I read in my daily practice every day is that this could be the day that I die. And may that inform how I live this day. So it's a good thing to keep that in mind. And then uh, about 20 years or so ago, maybe longer than that, I was found by a prayer in one of Thomas Merton's books that um, I've started uh, rereading. This kind of cycles in and out of my practice every day. And uh, it, it goes, um, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost, and, the, and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. That's a beautiful prayer, just an absolutely beautiful set of words. Merton was limited by his time, by, his, by the era in which he lived, as we all are. Um, so if you read any of Merton now, some people think he's no longer relevant, and there are aspects of his writing about which I would say that's absolutely true, but there are other aspects that I think are as relevant as when he wrote them uh, back in the 40s and, and 50s. So one of the books I read last year that really had a powerful uh, impact on me was a book called Field of Compassion by Judy Canada. Did the book group make that a book re reading? No, you didn't do that? So the field of compassion is uh, Judy Canada. When I read the book, I wanted to go back and, and see if I could get her to come here as one of our speakers sometime, but she had already left this planet. Um, Judy Canada is was a, um, a cosmologist. She wrote as a cosmologist. And she wrote as a cosmologist interested in spiritual teachings. So um, it's very really interesting that here you have a book of evolutionary cosmology and at the end of every chapter there's a prayer because she was also a devout Roman Catholic. And um, so um, one of the questions that I get, one of the two questions that I get when I start talking about how evolutionary cosmology is causing us to rethink all of our theological thinking is, well, what about prayer? How do you think about prayer in a field of energy that is so vast that we cannot get our minds around it? And so it was such a delight to see this woman who has this scientific orientation conclude every chapter in her book with a prayer. And I want to read to you one. Incomprehensible holy mystery. So often I am blind to your self-communication. So often I fail to see your love that is in plain view. Help me to see. 
Release me from my inattentional blindness. I love that phrase, inattentional blindness. And allow me to truly see what is before me. May I release myself and others from judgment. And may I discover in the silence who I am in you and who you are in me. Enable me to grow into a maturity that embraces the world and participates co-creatively in the life of the world. May all creation benefit from my practice of meditation. That's good stuff, folks. That's a good prayer. Now, all three of these uh, will be in the summary that goes out. If you don't get the summary, you can sign up for it. They'll be on the website. So that if you're looking for things to enrich your own daily spiritual practice with, I recommend all of these as ways to kind of get your focus going. Uh, it's not all of what a spiritual practice is, but uh, you can start with these. So in this time, we always honor the, tr the values of truth, freedom, and love. And we do so with the belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So three quick announcements before introducing uh, our speaker. And I thank you all for the space to make this transition in our personal lives that we're doing. There's a choral evensong this afternoon at 4 o'clock. I know it's inconvenient to come back to church in the afternoon, turn the TV off, or record the ball game. You can watch it later. This is All Saints Sunday, probably one of my favorite liturgical holidays in all the Christian calendar. It's worth coming back for, and so is attending the, the worship service across the street. As you know, there is an Ordinary Life Happy Hour this Friday night. And I want to keep reminding you that the first weekend in January, this woman, Jan Phillips, who wrote this book, Still on Fire, is going to be with us on Saturday morning, lunch, afternoon, and Sunday in here. So um, who was it that told me they're listening to, you're listening to her book, and it's dynamite, right? And she narrates a book which you got off Audible. The book is wonderful, and she's, it, 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 as um, Callista said, this is a great title. Somebody who's still on fire for that anyway. So I don't want that date to get lost in, um, in this time. Christmas, Advent, Thanksgiving, all of that. So put this in your calendar, first full weekend in January. Now, today, Dr. Jeff McDonald, our senior pastor here at St. Paul's, has agreed to come and tell us what in the UMC is going on? We need to know that. Now, Jeff, I need to tell you, you're following some powerful presentations. Barbara Robertson, two weeks ago. Um, Jim Bankston, I told him after that class, wow, whoa, was that dynamite? And he said, she's such a gift in this church. And, uh, and that's true. You will hear more from her. And then last Sunday, Stephanie Warfield who found her path to being an ordained interfaith minister by attending this class sitting on the back rows. So I'm warning you back row people that you put yourself at risk back there because you never know when grace is going to strike and you could, uh, oh yeah, yeah, Sherry wanted me to announce, I forgot. 
that out here there are some DVDs, CDs, and books that we found at the last minute that we're not taking with us. You're welcome to take them if you want them. And they're not just trash stuff. You just get them. So um, I told you last week that Stephanie was the first uh, interfaith, ordained interfaith minister. That's not quite true. She was the first board-certified chaplain, interfaith chaplain, uh, one of the first to do that. So wonderful presentation. Someone who has watched Dr. Jeff McDonald navigate the waters that the UMC is going through has commented on um, how grateful they are for his guidance and skill in doing this, that he's led the delegation to make the right decision at the right time and known just exactly what to do. Jeff is rotating off being the head of the Board of Ordained Ministry in the United Methodist Texas Annual Conference, United Methodist Church, a position I think he still has for the churches in Laos, which he might talk some about. Um, and Jeff, I would be remiss if I didn't use this opportunity to ask for a raise. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Anyway, Jeff, thank you very much for doing this today. Come and speak to us. Dr. Jeff McDonald. <clears throat> Thank you, Bill. It is uh, it's an honor to be with you all again. Um, I, I love this class. Uh, uh, I love to get to spend time with you all. Uh, I wish that we weren't going to be out of town this weekend because uh, we went to a pre-COVID happy hour with you all and haven't had a chance to come back. So, But we'll be struggling through Worst Fest in New Braunfels this weekend So, uh, with a group of friends. Uh, John, can you go back? No, you can't. To that slide a couple slides ago um, about the, what, what was it? The open our eyes to the inattention? Inattentional, uh, our inattentional blindness. Open our eyes to the. Make us aware that we are inattentionally blind. Yeah, inattentionally blind. I love it because, and I talk about this in my sermon today too, that um, we were interviewing candidates for bishop and uh, somehow we got on to, uh, in the fourth chapter of Luke, when Jesus really begins his public ministry, and he goes into the temple, and he unrolls the scroll with the prophet Isaiah, and, and he begins to talk about um, what, what his calling is here on earth, and it's to, uh, to uh, release the captives and, and to provide sight to the blind. And I've always thought that that was that, um, you know, because blindness was a horrible thing in Jesus's time. There was no cure for it unless you were just magically healed. You weren't going to go to the ophthalmologist or optometrist and get that taken care of. So I've always thought it was just cure for the blind. But, but one of the bishop candidates uh, said that she was kind of exegeting that out and said that um, uh, and, and to provide to bring, oh, how does the scripture say it? Uh, provide sight to the sight to the blind but she she said but it's really about opening our blind eyes to the people that we don't see opening our eyes to the people that we don't see so when you said that that in inattentional blindness I thought that's the same thing you know because it's it's opening us up 
to whatever, for if we become too calloused or whatever the reason that we don't see that, uh, yeah. So, uh, thanks. That's all the preaching I'm going to do here at this time. If you'd like to join us at 11 o'clock across the plaza. You're, and it is, it's, it's amazing music today, too. There's a brass ensemble that's there and just incredible, incredible. So, uh, okay, I want to talk to you all about uh, what the heck's going on in the United Methodist Church these days. I have visited with you all before, and, and we've talked about some of the things that are happening within the church. But um, we just, as Bill said, we just finished a jurisdictional conference. And the main work of jurisdictional, typically uh, in normal days, there's a general conference that happens every four years. And in the, uh, in the fall following that general conference, the jurisdictional conferences meet. And they take care of any business that needs to be taken care of that came out of the general conference. But really the main thing that jurisdictional conference does is to elect new bishops uh, for, for each jurisdiction. Now, so let me just quickly give you a little bit of, you all remember that, um, that uh, in, in 1776, uh, the America broke ties with England and, and uh, there were Anglican priests who were here from the Church of England and we asked them to leave uh, if they were loyal to the king. And so John Wesley helped in the colonies to get this new um, denomination started that was called Methodist. And uh, so the, the colonies in the United States really grew faster than the Methodist Church even here, although that was a great time of revival and there were, uh, but, but, but in the United Methodist Church, the basic work of the church happens in local churches. Uh, but, but remember, John Wesley was a connectional guy. And so uh, a group of local churches are organized into a district. And so here at St. Paul's, we belong to the Central South District. So if you sort of took I-10 and divided Houston, uh, everything on one side is Central South, kind of down to the Beltway, and everything on the other side is the Central North District, everything kind of to the north of Beltway. So we're in the Central South District. Uh, Dr. Elijah Stansel is our district superintendent. And, and there's nine districts that make up the Texas Annual Conference. And it runs roughly uh, from kind of Wharton uh, up to Texarkana, sort of along the I-45 corridor. It's not all of the state of Texas, but if you remember your Texas history that you had in seventh grade, and even if you didn't live in Texas, you should have had Texas history in seventh grade. Um, <laughs> but if remember that, that that's the part of Texas that Anglos first settled, that Stephen F. Austin brought in in his first land grant. So that's what, so, uh, and the Methodists grew in Texas along with the settlers that were coming in. And so that became, the Texas Conference. But as Texas grew and became a larger state, uh, now there's a North Texas Conference. It's kind of the Dallas metropolitan area. There's the Northwest Texas Conference. That's the um, Fort Worth sort of regional area. There's the uh, Rio Texas Conference. That's kind of Austin, San Antonio. So there's, there's five annual conferences uh, in the state of Texas now. But I always want to be clear that, that here we are, we are the Texas Conference, capital T-H-E, Texas Conference. And not that we're boast or proud about it or anything, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, so, uh, so then those, those annual conferences 
make up what's called a jurisdiction. And we're in the South Central jurisdiction, which includes Louisiana, Arkansas, uh, Oklahoma, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, um, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, all of that is what's called the, the, central, the South Central jurisdiction. Okay? And, and so there's a Western jurisdiction and a, a Southeastern jurisdiction and a Northeastern jurisdiction, but we're in the Central South jurisdiction. So last week we had our conference where uh, all of these different conferences come together. There's nine annual conferences that make up the South Central jurisdiction. We, uh, we had four vacancies for bishops, but because of what's happening in the United Methodist Church right now, they decided to only elect three bishops because the less churches you have, the less money you have coming in to pay those bishops. So we elected three new bishops. Uh, and and um, typically at a jurisdictional conference, it takes somewhere around 18 ballots to elect three bishops. And the reason is, is because, you know, every, every elder in the, every active elder in the conference is eligible to be a bishop. So there's 500 of us that could be like, but, but we, there were certain people who kind of rise up. So we had, we had seven candidates for our three spots. And so uh, they set, they set a bar and the bar was 160, about 168 delegates were there, half clergy, half lay, and we vote, and you have to have 60% plus one to be elected. So uh, at least 92 votes to be elected bishop. So you can imagine that the politicking and all that goes on, and, and to, at the last jurisdictional conference, the, for us, the last bishop was elected about 11 o'clock Friday night. You know, they started on Wednesday, and I think they had 21 ballots before they got the third bishop elected. Uh, in this incredible time, we, we elected three bishops on the first ballot. It was unbelievable. But I think the reason is because we were united on who we wanted to see become bishop. And as we talked to other delegations from other conferences, and said, you know, well, who were y'all wanting? And it was like, we want da-da-da, this, 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 this. And, and so everybody was kind of, it, it was just this amazing work of the Spirit to make that happen. But e even more amazing is that uh, the first elected was uh, Bishop D. Williamston. She's the first African-American woman to be elected from this jurisdiction. It's amazing. Yeah, you can clap about that. Yeah. And then the second elected uh, was Bishop Laura Merrill, and she comes out of the Capitol District in Austin. She's a preacher's kid. She's great. She serves as the district superintendent there. And, uh, and then the third elected was uh, Bishop David Wilson. And Bishop Wilson is the first Native American ever elected to be a bishop in the United Methodist Church. So it was just, it's just incredible. Um, while we, while the elections were going on, I was uh, texting Karen. You remember Karen Richards Kwan, and she's in Portland now. And that's the while while she's still a member of the Texas Annual Conference, she's serving there. And we were texting because all the jurisdictional conferences were meeting at the same time, and so uh, we were texting back and forth. And and they, 
they had 32 candidates for three positions. And they took kind of a straw poll and they narrowed that down to 18. And uh, so Wednesday afternoon, I was texting her. We, we took our first vote Wednesday at 3.30. And so right after that, I texted her and, and I said, well, how's it going there? And she said, well, we have these 18 candidates now and they're introducing themselves and each of them gets four minutes. And when their four minutes is up, they turn the mic off, so they better be finished. And so, John, I'm watching my time, so when are you going to turn my mic off? So, uh, but, uh, so, so I said, well, where are y'all? And she said, well, we're halfway through the introductions. And she texted back and said, where are y'all? And I said, we're finished. <laughs> and she said, you mean finished with the introductions? I said, no, we're finished with elections. <laughs> so, so then the, the conference secretary had to make all these changes and decide what we were going to do about the agenda because we had all these ballots that we were going to take and what we we're going to do. We ended up getting a kind of a day given back to us and it was all great. But, but here's the other thing that happens, that after the bishops are elected, they meet with the Jurisdictional Episcopacy Committee. And the Jurisdictional Episcopacy, Episcopacy Committee is made up of the heads of the delegations from each of the different annual conferences. And so, uh, and, and the head of the delegation is the first person elected as a delegate to conference. And so Tom Pace, Dr. Tom Pace down at St. Luke's was the clergy representative that was in the room for us. And then Don House, Don is a, um, um, an economics professor at Texas A&M. In fact, he'd be a good speaker sometime. Uh, he's a layperson, and uh, so they go into the room, and uh, you know, I, I, it's secret what happens in there. That you know, people say they're they're smoking cigars and drinking scotch, and uh, some people say there's trained monkeys who are going around and putting things and all, but. But what happens is they really have this very collegial relationship, the, the, the 18 of them, and they've made a covenant that whatever is discussed in the room never leaves the room so they can have whatever private conversations they need to have. They can say whatever they want about bishops and they don't have to worry about the words going to get back what they said. Uh, but, but they have this covenant that, um, that we are working for the entire jurisdiction. That, that Tom and Don are not just working for the best bishop for the Texas Annual Conference. The 18 of them are working for the best thing for all nine annual conferences in the jurisdiction, trying to have the best bishops in all those spots. And, uh, and so they work on that. And then the other thing they covenant is that whatever decisions are made in that room, they're our decisions. They're the 18 delegates who are in there. So they can't say, well, you know, we, we really wanted uh, Bishop Signs, but Tom was a bully and we ended up with blah, 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 or Tom didn't want that to happen, or Don didn't want that to happen, or, or Amy didn't want that to happen. They've made a covenant that what happens in there, when they come out of the room, everybody is unanimous and unified in the decisions that they make. So after the elections are done, they go off into this room and they deliver, and it's really all day. They started at nine o'clock, Thursday morning, and they finished about four o'clock Thursday afternoon. So they worked all day uh, in prayer and, and, and discernment about what was going to be best for all of the annual conferences. And then uh, they call everybody back in to the sanctuary and they uh, say, well, we're going we're gonna to introduce the new bishops. 
And uh, our delegation had talked, and uh, we really believed that uh, Bishop Laura Merrill was going to be the best bet for the Texas Annual Conference. She's from next door in Rio. She served as a district superintendent. Although it is not our tradition in Texas because we're a complicated annual conference. Uh, and, and in some ways that's true. I mean, we have the third largest city in the United States, sometimes fourth, sometimes third, you know, Chicago. Yeah. So sorry, no offense to Chicagoans. Uh, and uh, so we've, and, and we've, got, um, we've got a bunch of big churches. I mean, if you just think about uh, St. Paul's, St. Luke's, Chapelwood, Memorial Drive, and all those big churches in, in the suburbs and all. I mean, we've just got a bunch of big churches. But then at the same time, we've got rural churches that have six members, you know. So it, in some ways, it's a pretty complicated annual conference. So our tradition has been that we don't take a rookie bishop. But the other tradition in the jurisdiction has been that if you are elected out of an annual conference, you don't return to your annual conference. And so as we sort of did the math and thought about things, it appeared that we were going to have a rookie bishop. And we all thought that Bishop Merrill would be the best choice. And then if that didn't work, we decided that uh, Bishop Williamston would be the second best choice. And then if that didn't work out, then we thought Bishop Sines would be a great choice. And he, because he's the only one that's not a rookie. He's been serving in the Great Plains and then in, in the Central Texas Conference. And the Central Texas Conference had some leadership that was helping churches leave. I know y'all can't imagine that in the disaffiliation process. That's all I'll say. And, um, and, and he and Bishop Sines came in and really cleaned up there and they love him. And so, so their delegation was hoping that he would be able to stay there somehow. Um, and, and the North Texas Conference, which is kind of the Dallas area, uh, they, they love Bishop Harvey, and they wanted her to come there. But the committee, because we decided that we would go from nine bishops to eight bishops, we knew that two annual conferences were going to have to share a bishop, and there was much discussion about that. And the sharing was decided that it would be the North Texas Conference and the Central Texas Conference. So that kind of threw a kink in what was going to happen. So anyway, so the way that they let us know who new bishops are going to be, they, they parade them out on the chancel there at First Methodist uh, West Chase, and they walk with the, the um, Episcopacy Committee people. That, so, so Don House and Tom Pace would walk with our new bishop and their spouse out onto the stage. And so we're watching and we're anxious and we don't know what's going to happen and uh and they come out in alphabetical order so they're coming out across the stage and uh there first comes arkansas arkansas annual conference and their delegates are walking with bishop laura merrill and we think oh well we like bishop merrill she'd have been great here and then uh, next is louisiana and here comes Bishop Williamston with uh, the Louisiana delegation. And we think, oh, okay. Next comes Central Texas and North Texas. And Bishop Sines is walking with them. 
and then I, I can't remember, Oklahoma came next, and then uh, Great Plains, and uh, Bishop David Wilson, the, the uh, uh, Native American, he's a Choctaw, uh, he's, he's going to Great Plains. And then I, I, we see Bishop Harvey, and she's walking out with Tom Pace and Don House. And we all kind of look at each other like, Bishop Harvey's not in the right place because she's not supposed to be walking with them. And I look over at Bishop Harvey, and she looks at me, and she just does this. And everybody just erupts because uh, she's, uh, she's our new bishop, Bishop Cynthia Harvey, and she is amazing. Um, she um, was in the business world before she heard a call into ministry. Uh, she and really heard her call into ministry out of UM Army. Her uh, church was very involved in UM Army. She was a member at Foundry United Methodist Church. And, and uh, so I, I met Bishop Harvey uh, a little over 30 years ago when we were doing a UM Army together. She was the director of the camp. I was the program director. We were in um, Fairfield, Texas. Uh, we had a big camp and uh, we were always flipping circuit breakers and unclogging toilets. It seemed like that was the, what we did all the time. Uh, but she was, uh, she was six and a half months pregnant with her daughter Elizabeth and directing a UM Army camp. And uh, her husband, Dean, ordered a, a, a rollaway bed for her to be delivered there. I mean, and, uh, we, we kid each other a lot about that. Uh, but, but, uh, but out of her work in UM Army, she began to hear a call to ministry and so she began, uh, she left her secular job uh, and, and began going to seminary and uh, went to uh, Perkins. And then uh, she served at Memorial Drive United Methodist Church as an associate there. And then she came and worked in the conference office as our director of missions there. And so she was busy. I mean, there were hurricanes that year. It was a busy time for her. And then... Um, the Secretary General of UMCOR, the United Methodist Committee on Relief, I don't know if you all remember, but there were two earthquakes in Haiti that were pretty close together. And after the first earthquake, the Secretary General of UMCOR was there working with a group of people, and there was a second earthquake, and he was killed in that second earthquake. It was a tragic accident, not accident, tragic catastrophe. And when, uh, when after he died, uh, Bishop Harvey became Secretary General of UMCOR. And so she knows how to come in and get the work done in a disaster situation. Um, and and in, in our Texas Annual Conference, we're kind of in a disaster situation now. Uh, through the disaffiliation process, 40% of our churches will be out by the, by the end of the year. Uh, it is. It's. It's. It, it, um, at, about who you love. They're leaving because of who you love. They're. They're leaving over the issue of homosexuality. Um, and and. Um, it's. It's. It's terrible. It's. It's so. Um, it's just heartbreaking. The lies that have been told. Um, that. Um, if you stay in the United Methodist Church, you're going to get a gay pastor. And I'll tell you, Bishop Harvey, when she met with the delegation, she addressed those things head on. She said, you know, why in the world 
would I appoint a gay pastor to a church who doesn't want a gay pastor? Because you know what? When you, when you get mad about your pastor, you call the bishop and gripe about it. And so there's no way she wants to do that. So she said, no, you know, I don't want to do that, you know. And, and, and there was a rumor that she was going to charge extra money if you wanted to disaffiliate, and that's just not true. So many things um, just not true that have kind of led to this mess that we're in. Um, and, and I want to be careful what I say. Do I have to be careful in here? No. <laughs> if, you, if you look at kind of the MAGA tactics that are going on in our country, the, the, the GMC, the Global Methodist Church, has taken that same playbook and applied it in the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. This idea that, that you know, if you stay UMC, you're going to get a gay pastor. If you stay UMC, your pastor's going to have to do gay weddings. Well, they, they, nobody can tell me what weddings I can and can't do. I mean, I, straight people come to me and I, I say, oh, I don't think I should, will do your wedding. I mean, that's just hooey. Can I say hooey? Okay. Uh, or that, or that if, if you stay in the United Methodist Church, then uh, your church is going to have to have gay weddings that are there. And the truth is, the trustees of every individual United Methodist Church is who decides what the wedding policy is at that church. So if you stay in the United Methodist Church and your trustees say, we're not going to have same-sex weddings at our church, they can do that. Here at St. Paul's, we say we have Christian weddings in our church. So if you want to have a Buddhist wedding, then you can't do it here at St. Paul's. We have Christian weddings at our church because that's what our church wedding policy says. But so there's this, oh, oh, Bishop Harvey has a whole stable of gay pastors that she's going to bring in with her and put in all these places. And I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it, that, that there's, there's, Thousands of immigrants who are streaming to the border who are going to... It's that, those same kind of MAGA tactics uh, that put fear into almost half of our churches in the, in the conference uh, that have, have caused them to disaffiliate. We, we, don't, um, we don't believe in the Bible anymore. We don't believe in, in, in the divinity of Jesus. And, and that's, it's just wrong. It's just things that are wrong. Um, so one of the things she said is that, that we're going we're gonna to work on unity. And, and, and uh, she dispelled those lies that had been told about her and, uh, and talked about what um, this kind of season of hope for the United Methodist Church, for the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. So um, it, it is, it's a, it's a difficult time for us. I mean, if you think about uh, the conference budget is made up from the apportionments that all of our churches pay. You know, apportionments are like a tithe. It's roughly 10% of our budget here at St. Paul's. Our budget's about four and a half million. Our apportionments are about 450,000. So it's our, it's our tithe to the general church. It's what pays for, it, it pays for our district superintendents and all those salaries and things. But it also pays for things like all of the administrative people at, at UMCOR their salaries are paid through our apportionments. That means when we give money to UMCOR, like I hope you will for the tornadoes that just came through up in the north, uh, when we give money for that, 100% of every dollar goes to relief because our apportionment dollars 
are what's supporting the salaries and the maintenance of those things. So, so if you think about it, in Texas, if 40% of our churches are gone, then there's going to be a significant amount of apportionment dollars that are coming in. And how do we deal with that? How do we work on those things? And so now it's not a direct correlation because if, if 40% of our churches are gone, that doesn't necessarily mean 40% of our apportionments are gone. Because um, small churches have smaller apportionments. And, and 111, uh, two weeks ago the number was 111. I'm sure it's a little bit higher now. But 111 of the churches that had left the United Methodist Church in the Texas Annual Conference that had disaffiliated and joined the Global Methodist Church 111 of them, their average worship attendance was 50 people. So it, it's a lot of small churches. And so that's why that correlation is not the same to say 40% leave. Because 15% of the apportionments of the Texas Annual Conference come from five churches, uh, including us, uh, us, St. Luke's, um, Memorial Drive, Chapelwood, and another one. So, so, uh, but it's still, it's just going to be, it's going to be a hard row ahead of us. But we're going to be smaller. We're going to be uh, more nimble. We're going to, we're not going to be fighting anymore. Um, and so we can keep our eyes on really the important work that is ahead of us. Uh, I, I tell you, um, my dad goes to, um, another United Methodist Church uh, on the burbs of the city. Um, he has Alzheimer's, he's 91 and has Alzheimer's and um, he, he still drives to church on Sundays. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, not yet. You wanna go over there and get him, would you? Oh, no, I just want you to go. Just go. <laughs> I'll give you $100 if you'll go over there and take his keys away. Um, but, but his church, and he has, he's not been able to go to Sunday school, and I think he's chosen not to because cognitively it's hard for him, and, and so he, it, he gets anxious when he's in a group of people. And, they're, and so, um, but anyway, they have been so enveloped with this fighting within the church. And by the way, when their church had their vote to disaffiliate, the church was 55%. You have to have 67% to leave, two-thirds to leave, and their church was 55%. So you talk about a split in a church. I mean, you, you, if, if, we were gonna, if we were gonna have a vote in here to buy a different rug for here, and I didn't know y'all were going to vote about 90% or so for the blue rug instead of the beige rug. I'm not going to have a vote. I mean, I'm, if, if, because a vote that splits is horrible. Anyway, all that is to say, uh, as my dad has come less and less, and, and I, have, I have communicated with the pastor why he's there less, no one has called to check on him. No one has said, hey, can we come by and bring something during the week? Or where have you been? Because all of their efforts have been in the fight, in the arguing. Uh, and, and the same thing is true in mission stuff in those churches. Uh, you all, Patrick, y'all can 
get an amen out of that. Y'all know what's going on in another suburban church. That their vote was was it sixty forty? Yeah. 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 And when you have a vote like that, you know, if we vote on the blue rug and and sixty percent of y'all vote for the blue rug, then forty percent of you are gonna be upset. And they're going to go, yeah, because they don't feel, not really over a rug, but, but over human sexuality, they're going to feel like they don't have a home anymore. That this, this I can't have a home here anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's what's really, be, be, and, and I'll tell you, we have people every Sunday visiting here from those disaffiliating churches. We've had, I see, I know Bill, I know. We have people that are driving in. Oh, he looked at his watch, and so... <laughs> I mean, people are, we, we've had people from, uh, from the Woodlands visiting here. We've had people from Kingwood. We've had people from Friendswood. I mean, kind of all around who have visited here. And, and I, I talk with them, and I say, you know, I, you'd love it here at St. Paul's, but you know what? There's a, there's a United Methodist Church in Spring that is closer to you that, you know, try them too. So, uh, but the worst part is um, I served in Chandler, Outside of Tyler, it's about ten miles west of Tyler, between Tyler and Athens. Great town. That's where uh, that's where we lived for Bailey's high school years, and she graduated from high school there. Um, and they they voted to disaffiliate, but there there are families in that church who have LGBTQI plus people in their families, kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, somebody in their family. And they, they don't feel like they have a home anymore. And there isn't another place for them to go. Because you, you, you think First Baptist is going to, and I'm not beaten up, but, but they're not going to be welcome there. They're not going to be welcome at the Assembly of God Church. They're not going to be welcome at the Independent Bible Church. Well, they, they, the, the parents might be welcome, and their money might be welcome in the offering plate, but when their kids come on Christmas Eve... They're not going to be welcome. I mean, I, and I think that's the most heartbreaking part of it. And, and this is, it's not new. It's really been building since 1972. Uh, I think last time I was here, we talked about the, in 1968, when we became the United Methodist Church. Uh, and then in 1972, that language was introduced into the Book of Discipline about uh, incompatible, that homosexuality is incompatible with Scripture. So we've been in this fight ever since then. Uh, but for a long time, my prayer was that, that we could be the denomination that, that rose up and said, we don't agree on this, but we agree on the gospel of Jesus, and so we're going to stay together. Because, gosh, for 40 years, those churches did. I mean, they, they went to, I, I, would, I would guess everybody in here, when you go on Tuesday, unless you've already been, I don't know that everybody is going to vote the same way and, and all, but here we sit together. Uh, in the sanctuary, everybody doesn't agree on things, but, but we're going to take communion together this morning, and we don't say, okay, Republicans come to this side for communion, Democrats come to this side for communion. We're in that together, uh, sharing the gospel together. So the witness that we could have been to the world was that, okay, we don't agree on this human sexuality thing, but we agree on the importance of sharing the gospel the God's love. We agree on the importance of sharing God's love with people. So that really made me sad when we got to the place where we couldn't do that. We, um, 
I do, th uh, if I were younger and going to write a doctoral dissertation, I think it would be fascinating because I think that if our country was in a different place, the, the United Methodist Church might have been able to survive this. But we've been so polarized as a nation, um, it just, yeah. Is this reflective of the, No other annual conference in the United States has experienced the number of disaffiliations that we have. Yeah. The Central Texas Conference had a large number of disaffiliations percentage-wise, but not near the, the volume that we've had. I mean, we've got 600-ish churches, and probably 250 or so will, be, will vote out. At annual conference. If, if, if a church disaffiliates and they get, they come to their senses and realize what a mistake this has been, which I think it is for mm -hmm. all sorts of reasons. Mm -hmm. Can they come back? Repeat the question. Okay, so Bill asked um, if a church voted to disaffiliate, and and they wake up and realize, oops, uh, can we come back? Right now, there's not a way back. But I guarantee you, when General Conference meets in 2024, we'll be working on legislation for how to get back in. Because part of, in the, in the GMC, uh, they, they don't have the itinerant system. They have more like a call system where you put together a pulpit committee and you go interview and you go find your own pastor. They want to be sure they're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the problem with that is, who, who's, who in the world is going to go to Red Lake, Texas and be the pastor there? I, I'll tell you who's going to go, and I don't, I, I don't mean this to offensively, but who's going to go is a divorced Baptist preacher because they've been kicked out of their church. So I'm going to go to Randy, and then I'm going to come over here. Okay, I'll repeat it. Randy, say it. What's the percentage, uh, if you know it, of uh, disaffiliated churches that have gone to the G? Global Methodist Church or to in being independent? Okay, I'm going to give you a number from... Okay, Randy asked uh, what, what the number is of disaffiliated churches who have joined the Global Methodist Church, the GMC. So, and I'm going to tell you a number from about two weeks ago, so I know it's a little bit different now. So there were roughly uh, 200, right about 200 churches who had voted to disaffiliate in the Texas Annual Conference, and 111 of them had voted to go with the GMC, about half, yeah. So, and, and some of the, the some of the largest are thinking about going independent and not going to be a part of the GMC. So, yeah. That was one of my questions. Oh. Well, yeah, I'm going independent. The other thing was you said about forty percent are going to disaffiliate, and then you said the average attendance is fifty. So, of of the 200-ish that have left, 111 have joined the GMC, the Global Methodist Church. And of those 111, their average worship attendance right. is 50. Right. So my point is, so are most of those churches that are disaffiliated, are they, what I'd hate to say rural churches, but they're churches outside of the yes. metropolitan area? Yes. The... Um, the Woodlands Methodist Church, which is the second largest in our conference, has voted to disaffiliate, but they don't know what they're going to do. 
They don't know if they're going to remain independent. They don't know if they're going to join the GMC. They haven't decided what they're going to do. The largest church in the conference that has disaffiliated and joined the Global Methodist Church is First Methodist Conroe, which was, it's a fair-sized church. It's not as big as St. Paul's, but it's a fair-sized church. So, Yes? Yeah, can you explain, I read at, under some Methodist newsletter that the Western jurisdiction just elected one, two gay they, bishops? They, they elected three new bishops like okay. we did in the Western jurisdiction. And that's where I was talking about earlier where Karen is, where they had 32 candidates for three spots. But the second bishop that they elected, uh, his name is Cedric. Oh, goodness, y'all need a new rug. Blue, a new blue rug. Uh, his name is Ced Dr. Cedric something or other, but he's, he's gay. Okay, so my question is, I'm, I'm confused. If the Book of Discipline says that homosexuality is not compatible with scripture teaching, uh -huh. then how can we have, and I'm glad they elected a gay bishop, I'm uh -huh. all for it, but how does that okay. square with the Book of Discipline? Yeah, yeah. And my second question is, if you don't mind, no, no. the trustees at this church have said that we conduct Christian weddings. Yeah. Can you, as a, in the current, with the current Book of Discipline, mm -hmm. can you conduct a gay marriage? Okay, let me answer question one first. So what's interesting about our, the polity of our system is that those jurisdictions, um, they, they're, uh, they're not independent, but they, they act on what's best for their jurisdiction. And what that means is, uh, for instance, when Bishop Karen Olivetto was elected at the last jurisdictional conference, and she's a lesbian, and uh, someone in Texas tried to file charges on her, but we're not in their jurisdiction. Only, only someone in the Rocky Mountain Annual Conference can file charges. So uh, Bishop, I wish I could think of his name, Cedric, I shouldn't call him by his first name because he's a bishop now. Uh, but uh, Bishop Cedric, yeah. So only the Western jurisdiction could file charges against him, but they elected him. And, and so what we, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but things in Texas are different than things in Washington. Yeah. Or, or things in Massachusetts, or things in Florida, or things in Georgia, or things. And so this, this jurisdictional system allows for contextual ministry Yes. If nobody files charges, then there's nothing to do about it. And, and, and let me tell you, people love Bishop Olivetta. And she's very effective and doing amazing work. And Bishop Cedric, from what I read in his biography, he's going to do incredible. He's a, he grew up in Georgia, was in the Air Force, but he's written books. And he's this amazing leader and just what they need now. And so, yeah, so it's contextual to the area that's there. And, and that's why I say that, that First Methodist Church in Red Lake is, A, not going to get a gay pastor. There really is a town of Red Lake. And it's right down the road from Red Bio. And, um, and, uh, and, and they haven't had a wedding at First Methodist Red Lake probably in 20 years. So their, their fear of all of a sudden having a bunch of gay weddings at their place is just crazy. So here, here's the second question. Uh, we passed a resolution 
at jurisdictional conference that called for an abeyance on trials uh, for, uh, for clergy who perform same-sex weddings or, clergy, or, or people who want to be ordained who are LGBTQI. Uh, so, but, but the problem with, yeah, yeah, the problem with an abeyance is that it doesn't change the book of discipline. So a, a jurisdiction or an annual conference, whoever can't change the book of discipline. Only only general conference can change it. Yeah. Bishop Jones has been very clear that he he doesn't believe in the abeyance. The, the abeyance means that we're gonna we're gonna stop we're gonna stop trials. We're not gonna have any trials. So if if a clergy if I were to perform a same sex wedding and somebody didn't like it and brought charges against me, then the, an abeyance would mean that, um, that Bishop Jones would say, or whoever the bishop is would not say, would, would say we have an abeyance now and so we're not having any trials until the language changes. Yeah, it's a pass, you get a pass, yeah, until language changes. However, the difficulty with that is that the bishop has to agree that they're going to uphold the abeyance. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and right now, I serve under a bishop that doesn't believe in the abeyance. So. So there, uh, you've got to go back to work. I do. Um, will the book of discipline be changed? I anticipate because here, here's here's the thing. If you look at these, uh, if you look at these elections that happened across the jurisdictions this past week, what we see is, um, and this is what scary. The thing that's scary, it's it. What's scary for old white men like me is that it's a loss of power, and and a loss of um, privilege. And, and it's scaring, it doesn't scare me, but it scares some of my colleagues. Uh, but, but what we see, if you look at our delegation from the Texas conference, it was pretty centrist and progressive, which is, it's never been before. It's been pretty far right. And so this new delegation, and what we're seeing is all across the denomination, we're seeing that kind of thing when you have a, a, a second uh, LGBTQI bishop elected, you have uh, a Native American bishop elected, so we're seeing a, a more centrist and progressive move within the church. So the, the long answer to your question is yes, I believe that the book of discipline is going to change you know, in, that, in that incompatible language, that horrible, painful, incompatible language. So you've shown that you're very knowledgeable and skilled about this, and you're also skilled in uh, taking this right up to the line so that you didn't have to make a public commitment about my race. <laughs> <coughs> my grandpa used to say, you can wish in one hand and... Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Thank you for being here. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step and see you here next week. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. All. Thank you.